Thank you for listening to Therapy for Guys. My name is Kike Autry, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Katy, Texas. In this podcast, I want to explore the issues that men stay silent about, our struggles with anxiety and depression, our relationship issues, obstacles that we face with a diagnosis like ADHD or autism or OCD, and our big existential crises, those related to spirituality and religion, to larger cultural realities, and to the question of the meaning of life. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to learn more about me, I would encourage you to check out my website. You can find it at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. In this episode, I speak with Reverend James Dirkis. James is the rector at Trinity by the Sea Episcopal Church in Port Aransas, Texas. In this episode, we explore surfing as a spiritual practice, the depth psychology of James Hollis, understanding the divine as mystery, Christianity as a container for authentic spiritual experience, working with dreams, men, and the importance of connection and much more. I've known James for many years. He's a wonderful guy, truly an authentic man that cares about people, cares about the world. And this was just such a fun conversation to do it in his office, to get a chance to worship with him that morning, and to really explore one of our favorite authors, James Hollis. I love the idea of the divine as mystery, And it was really fun to explore his understanding of dreams and how he's kept a dream journal for so long. Guys, I hope that you really enjoy this episode. I know that it was meaningful for me and it lifted me up and it fed my soul during a difficult time. And I just hope that it speaks to you and that it encourages you and inspires you you to continue the conversation.
James, thank you so much for having me at your beautiful church in your office to record this episode of Therapy for Guys. I'm, I'm so grateful. Well, thanks for coming down, coming to our little island. Yeah. Um, but before you get into kind of who you are, just a, a quick uh, sketch for the listeners of how we know each other. I, th- I think we go back over 10 years when yeah. we were both in Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not so much that we kept up with each other uh, throughout the years, but um, I worked at a seminary where I was in charge of leading this series of kind of reflections on how uh, certain movies connected with like faith and spirituality. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were graciously hosting us um, kind of at your church and, and I think we even spoke at one of the events. So it's just been cool throughout the years seeing your development and kind of where you've ended up. And uh, it's awesome to just reconnect. Yeah, so I'm, I'm very absolutely. grateful for that. Yeah, we have a lot of a lot of intersections with our different journeys, but um, and it's good to see you and have you here once again. Thank you. So, James, would you mind just spending a couple moments, just kind of introducing to the listeners yourself, uh, telling them kind of you know who you are, what you're up to, and then at that point we can kind of jump into a conversation. Yeah. So I'm um, I'm the the rector of Trinity by the Sea Episcopal Church in Port Aransas, and that means I'm the head priest. Um, and I've been here for about 10 years now, just over 10 years. Um, one of the big milestones and markers of our community life was Hurricane Harvey, which made landfall just north of us and uh, both brought a lot of destruction, but also a lot of creative energy to the island. Um, and before moving here, as you mentioned, I was in Houston. Um, I'm a lifelong Episcopalian. I grew up in the Episcopal church. Um, it's been a place where I could always ask the questions I needed to ask and it's it's supported and challenged me, um, throughout my life. And another one of our crossroads is, um, the Jungian world. Um, not long after I got well, while I was in Houston, I actually started um, therapy with Jim Hollis when he was still in Houston. And um, is that when he was like the director of the Jung Center? Yes. Okay, that's right. And um, and when I moved, I wasn't back in those days. I I didn't really understand like doing therapy from a distance and sure <laughs> there certainly we didn't use zoom back then right this I is remember. like pre-covid yeah. days <laughs> so I, I was not interested in in doing a long distance thing so um until um i went to this retreat called the inner journey retreat which was mm. a a Jungian um retreat that created created a, some space for me to do some really good um depth psychology work and through that, realized I needed to reconnect with him. Um, and uh, so that's that kind of that became a big part of who I um, am as a priest, as well as just my own personal development, kind of that psychology piece along with the spiritual side uh, through the church. Um, what else? I've I've been married to my wife Laura for 22 years now and our son Eli is now 12 years old and so is he um, in 6th or 7th grade? He's in 7th grade. 7th grade, okay. 
and he, we are a surfing family. Um, nice. We all go out and surf, and we sail, and we fish here. Um, not how, the, how is the surfing in Port Aransas? Um, for any surfers out there, it's horrible. Stay away. Okay. We don't need any more. Uh, but it's it's. Yesterday was a lot of fun. We had a surf contest, and the waves turned on. wasn't huge, but it was it was good enough for the contest. And this Thursday of this week, it's supposed to be really big with. Um, like 14 second periods between waves, which is uncommon here. Mm. It's a lot of, there are, there are not many great surf days for most surfers. Um, but I really enjoy paddling out to whatever's out there and sure. they can do with it. Sure. Okay. So I'm always guilty, according to my wife of overthinking things and, and trying to find maybe the meaning when there, when there is no meaning, but I'm going to go ahead and ask you a question about surfing. Okay. I, I don't know shit about surfing. Hopefully mm-hmm. it's okay to curse. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I'm always curious for people that do surf, if there is some kind of spiritual formation involved in it, I, I, I guess if I can ask it another way, how do you end up seeing surfing as either a spiritual thing for you or maybe mm-hmm. something that's connected to your depth psychological approach to reality. Is there anything there? Oh yeah. Yeah, okay. definitely. I mean, it's so when I think of, um, spiritual, spiritual practice, okay. let's say the things that I look to, obviously I'm a priest. So ritual is one of those, um, community is a big part of our spiritual lives. Mm. So, um, there's community nature, is an important spiritual yeah. element. Exercise and using my body is a big spiritual element for me. Um, and so surfing checks a lot of those boxes, especially, especially the nature and exercise. Mm. Um, and I would probably add solitude, even though that's a little different from community. But sure. So my favorite surfing is going out by myself um, early morning and there, there's definitely, that's some of my best prayer time, just being outdoors. You're at the whim of the waves. It's not like you, you bring an effort. So the spiritual metaphor begins, right? So you bring the effort of paddling. Mm. You have to pay attention to what the water's doing. So it's beyond you, but the wave catches you. I mean, you paddle and put yourself in the way, but the wave actually catches you and you can then pay attention and, and ride it. Mm. And so th- they're rich surfing spiritual metaphors. And they're recently, in a recent sermon, I was talking about um, fear. And okay. there's a lot of people have this fear of what's down there. That I call it the what's down there fear. <laughs> Your shirt has sharks on it. Oh, yeah. No, I, I definitely have that fear in more than one way. <laughs> right. So you get in the water and you can't see. There's a there's a real fear of like, I don't know what's down there. Some It's Leviathan. Right. You know, that, um, whatever, that chaos, that the monster. Absolutely. And so I felt that a lot when I started surfing. But now it's kind of, it's, it's gone away. But the point is like the water and the depth and the unknown, whether you, you know, lean psychology and it's the unconscious that's down there or, um, on a spiritual plane, like God, um, that is beyond our control. Um, 
And so, yeah, so it's a, it's definitely a spiritual thing for me as well as sailing. I mean, sailing, you're also paying attention to the wind, Mm. um, and, and working with it. So, you know, you can talk about working with the Holy spirit to use church language. Sure. Um, Sure. So, okay. I I think this is a really good segue into, um, not just depth psychology, but James Hollis, uh huh. Yeah. You know, we we kind of have read quite a bit of his work. We we've discussed it in text messages. Like like mm-hmm. you said, you know, you even have a therapeutic relationship mm-hmm. with him. What what has struck me lately about his writing, and, and and maybe it's always been there, but I think it's some of his later work. As I think as he's getting older, mm-hmm. I think he's reflecting a little bit more on like spirituality or a philosophy of life, mm-hmm. and he talks about kind of the great mystery. Right. And and I, I'm not saying he necessarily, you know, puts a name on it. I think that's part of what he's trying to move away from. Uh-huh. But I guess as I think about James Hollis and his work and what you just said about sailing and and surfing in the ocean, how do you understand kind of the great mystery and, and our relationship to that mystery? Mm-hmm. And I know that's kind of a big question, but do, do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? Oh, yeah. Um, so, so part of my story, after getting to Port Aransas from Houston, I had, in Houston, I had a clergy support group mm. that was Jungian-based, Pittman McGee, led that, um, and then, as I mentioned, I had, I met with James Hollis, um, I was meeting regularly with him at that time, I also just had my, I was in a different diocese, the Diocese of Texas. Okay. Uh, was really close with the bishop there, knew, you know, grew up in that diocese, so knew the clergy. They knew me when I was, you know, a kid in youth group kind <laughs> of stuff. Um, and moving here, while I was so excited about being in this amazing natural setting and quickly fell in love with the community here, it was also like all those support networks that I had built up mm. were gone. And I think. Um, that, that was part of what led me to a real crisis in my faith and in my vocation. Um, as I mentioned on one of those inner journey retreats, um, or I mentioned the retreat on one of those, I had this strange experience and it was the only way I can articulate is that it felt like my priesthood died. Wow. Like I was in this open place. I, I was, I was about 35, 37. So getting into some real midlife passage stuff. Absolutely. And oddly, I went back to my room after, um, kind of having this feeling of like not trusting my vocation, feeling like it was hollow and dead, sat down, was doing some writing and I looked up and on the, the picture above my desk, it was like this fox hunt mm. picture that were, I think were in all the different rooms, but this one, the dogs were around the fox and it was titled The Death. Wow. And I just, I just, I, I at that moment, I felt that um, my, I couldn't be a priest anymore. I thought mm. I was going to have to just stop. Um, so... That's a long story, but it, it it's it's what brought me to really 
let go at least for a time of the church's language for God because it just kind of fell out from underneath me. Now I under now I think of it as my God image dying, like okay. the way I had perceived God. Sure. That's what died. Okay. And in that time, I still I wanted to call my wife and say I couldn't be a priest. When I finally did talk to her, she said. Um, I'm not leaving Port Aransas. You got to figure this shit out, (laughs) (laughs) which, which was great. Exactly what I needed. Um, so in the, in this interim, um, I felt, you know, I still had to go stand at the altar and be the priest for my church, Mm. even though it felt really hollow. So in that time I started using the language of mystery to refer Mm. to God because of prayerful experiences some church experiences, experiences in nature of the divine, um, I knew I had a deep faith in mystery and something that I wasn't comfortable calling God for a short time. Um, and so in that time, I started um, saying, I'm, I can be a priest to the mystery. Mm. And this church community uses the language of the church, the Bible, um, the liturgy to point to that mystery. And so I could go and serve and feel authentic being a priest to the mystery and using what I considered their language at the time. Now, you know, while I relate to it very differently than before, I'm very comfortable using church language once again. Mm. But so when, when he's talking about that mystery that's kind of what I think back to. It was like everything else I distrusted was disillusioned in that time, wasn't comfortable with the language of the church. Even one of my one of the things I wrote about was I felt like my seminary professors had lied to me. Like it was it was on that level yeah. of like this this none like of this makes duped. yeah, none of this makes sense anymore. And and I've I mean I've talked to about it in some ways at, at the church since then to help actually encourage people if they are disillusioned or if they ha- are having periods of doubt. I'm like, great, go there, mm. <laughs> you know, go with that doubt and see where it leads you. Because I think that's, I, I don't think doubt is the opposite of faith. I think it's a gateway to a more authentic faith mm. when, if you can, move through that language that you've been given by others into a real experience. And then maybe it's the, again, maybe it's the very same language used before, but you relate to it differently. Yeah, no, that's really good. I I was just read just in thinking about our conversation this morning, I I woke up a little early and was just reading more of Hollis and, you know, something he says in a lot of his books is that this great mystery, or sometimes he talks about it as, you know, kind of a healthy spirituality is one that helps us navigate the three A's, ambiguity, ambivalence, and anxiety. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I just know for myself, when, when I held to certain understandings of God in my past, they mm-hmm. were tethered around this like anxiety management system. And they, they, they helped me sort of still hold on to some kind of certainty and order and structure. Not that those things aren't important at all, but I was probably white knuckling it too much. Right. And, um, 
developing more of an understanding of like a great mystery mm-hmm. or um, as even some of the Christian mystics have talked about like the, the, the God that emerges once. Yeah. Like your God image has died, right? right? The God yeah. beyond God. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's something that just holds space, I think, for life and reality and the things mm-hmm. that all, all, uh, don't always go so well. So that's the kind of stuff that really resonates with me, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Teresa of Avila and um, St. John of the Cross talk about the, the dark night of the soul, right? The dark right? night of the soul, yes. Which, um, you know, is, is that, and I think I'll generalize here. Please. Um, but generally, Christian, Christianity in America is about light and bright and the, the whole prosperity gospel thing. Right. And it, it's to the detriment of the dark and fecund and um, the ground, um, it's, it's all sky. It's not ground. And that said, there are plenty of examples through the history of the church of that, that dark, um, in a fecund sense or in a fertile, um, healthy sense of the, the spiritual. And, um, Barbara Brown Taylor wrote a book called um, learning to walk in the dark. She's great. I love that. Which, book. which kind of, it's kind of a survey, but her, her journey of being comfortable with darkness. Um, and I, th- I think she even wrote it kind of through phases of the moon. Like each chapter is kind of a, a phase of yes. the moon, um, from new moon to new moon. And, um, so that's a, that's a really great resource. And we're at the church right now. We're reading a book called ladder to the light, mm. which is by, um, by an elder in the Choctaw nation. And he's also a Bishop in the Episcopal church. And oh, it's, okay. it's about, it uses the metaphor of the Kiva. Mm. Um, so it starts in darkness and then climbing each rung of the ladder out of the Kiva is a step. Uh, is a chapter of the book, and so it's kind of honoring and being comfortable with the dark and the unknown and the mystery. Sure. And from that place, then moving toward toward light. Mm. So it's a that's another um, really good really good resource that ladder to the light. But but that's it's mystery, of course. And let me just disclaimer here. Um, I've heard clergy talk about mystery in a very dismissive way and as a way to actually um, repress questions. Like, it's mm. a mystery, don't ask. And I right. definitely do not mean mystery in that sense. For me, mystery is all about asking and all about question and moving through into ambiguity and into facing anxiety. Um, and so that's that mystery is what um, leads us to a deeper trust that's not about saying, oh, it's a mystery, don't ask. I'm but- so glad you're bringing this up because I remember feeling shut down in a variety of stages of my life with the kind of mystery trump right. card. Right, yeah. Oh, you know, you have this question about science or this other religion or, mm-hmm. or this experience that you've had. Well, it's just a mystery, you know, trust the scripture, whatever it right. was. It, it shut down conversation. Right. And so I'm so glad that you're highlighting that that sometimes happens. And that's not what you're talking about here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, cause I, I realize 
you know, language is so important and just paying attention, Absolutely. making sure that people are on the same definition of things. <laughs> so when I say mystery, I always like to say, I'm not shutting this down. I'm actually saying mm. this is, that, that's, that's where the deeper truth is, is in that, mm. in that loosening of the dogma of the, because I mean, dogma and doctrine is all supposed to support people in their journey mm. when it becomes something that shuts down the conversation i think it's it's being misused sure sure um, man could you speak to that because that's an interesting way to frame it what would be the ways that you have found dogma and doctrine like categories mm-hmm. have helped people on their journey and then maybe what are some ways that you've seen that it can kind of shut down the process or mm-hmm. be used to not encourage the exploration and the venturing out into mm-hmm the great expanse and the mystery. So I'll, we just sat in church and said the creed together, yes, right? Yes, um, which I struggled with. <laughs> yeah, right. So I said it though. <laughs> <laughs> um, and even the way I introduce the creed is intentional. Mm. I, I, I invite people to the page and all that and then say, let us affirm the faith of the church. Mm. Um, I, I don't expect everyone to always agree with everything in there, but that's the, that is the faith of the church. And so I, as I introduce it, I want to, even if most people don't recognize that for me, I want to say, this is the church's faith that we're saying together. So if someone at any point doesn't, comes to me and says, I have a trouble with some part of the creed, that can be the starting point. Like that's the, that's the faith of the church. Um, in in seminary in systematic theology, I had a professor um, Jeff Hensley who gave me a very helpful metaphor that works really well around here. Okay, <laughs> and he said the creed is sort of like the channel markers um, out going along the bay. Right, sure. if you stay between the channel markers, you know you're in safe territory. Mm. So that's kind of like the creed outside. That's where the best fishing is, and that's great to explore and go. But if you need the safe avenue, that's what the creeds and the doctrine and dogma are. This is a safe place to travel. But I've learned, and lots of people have learned, that there's really interesting stuff outside of those channels um, that you can go and explore. Maybe you need some experience before you go do that, or just know that you might get stuck on a sandbar. Um, That's one of the risks that you take. And, I think um, it's so good. Yeah, it's that was really helpful but, to because me. I, I think, man, I hope I, I'm sure I'll get pushed back for what I'm going to say, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> I, I even feel like in, sometimes in depth psychology circles, some of the people that I interact with, they can almost romanticize the darkness or like the disorder and the chaos and the ambiguity. And at some level, I do that too. But man, it can lead to some chaos. <laughs> Yeah. Into some some really difficult you know places in your life. You know, Jung even talked about be careful not to get like consumed by the archetypes or, or to get right. lost in them. Right. That some kind of container, some type of boundary, mm-hmm. some type of safety net. I don't know if that's the right way to put it. Is important on the journey. Mm-hmm. I guess the danger is all those structures can get ossified and become static, and, right. and, and then you lose the mystery. But mm-hmm. I don't know that the goal is to just flail around and, and, and drown in the mystery either. Right, right, yeah. 
Yeah. It's, it's a tension that I, that I, that I struggle with. Yeah. And, and any, I mean, I think Pittman McGee, he first said, you can be fundamentalist about anything. Oh, and, absolutely. Including the Jungian language and all of that. Um, but, but yeah, even, um, but the, the, the metaphor of channel markers or, um, guide rails, you know, it is, it is one of my early dreams when I started meeting with Jim, um, I was, and he, he was like, oh yeah, this is a classic beginning analysis <laughs> dream. Um, it was a stairwell going down and at the bottom, the door was cracked open and it was dark. Mm. And when I shared it, he was like, I'll go down there with you. I'll, I'll, I'll guide you down to see what's down there. So you don't have to be worried about it. I'm going to walk with you and we're going to go see, we're going to mm. go explore mm. and find what's down there. And so that's the, the church as a container is a, you know, in my world, the church is a container, a place where people can come and explore the mystery. Um, but, and for me, the, we are all kind of co-guides. We're, we're supporting each other. Um, I play a special role in the church as priest, but it's about the conversation and the, mm. the, the journey along the way. Um, that we, you know, we kind of workshop our spirituality here. Oh, I like that. And then we go out into the world and either, you know, practice the enacting our faith in the way we care for people and, um, and we, or, or, you know, we go out and we explore our faith in the way that's personal to us. Maybe we don't call the mystery God or we're not comfortable saying Jesus and that's, that's okay. You know, you can come back here and we'll do our thing here and then you can go out and practice your, your faith or find your way through mystery. Um, how, how you need to. Mm, I like that. Okay. How do you think about this one? So this may be a complicated question. Let's see if I can get through it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, it touches on Christianity, deaf psychology, something that James Hollis, I think, writes a lot about. Um, it's it's the question of authority. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and because and, he writes a lot about, you know, kind of the goal of life at some level is to get in touch with your inner authority mm-hmm. and to to follow that, right? To To kind of ask yourself... Where is this taking me? Mm-hmm. What what wants to come out of me right. as I'm in touch with this inner authority and following it? How do you think about that in light of? And maybe this is too stereotypical, but when I when I think about traditional religion, mm-hmm. even Christianity, the church, yeah. it, it tends to have authority figures, right. uh, other sources of authority, whether they're uh, church history or, or sacred scriptures, mm-hmm. that maybe stand in I don't know if opposition to one's inner authority but but at least some tension right yeah and 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 I'll be honest that was one of the things that kind of led me sort of for the time being out of the institutional church was I couldn't quite navigate that tension right but but I recognize that that's me and my psyche I I wouldn't Mm -hmm. impose that on anyone else you know How, how do you kind of hold that together Sort of the church's authority and all that means, and then one's inner authority. Right. Yeah. Um, so this is this is something that I'm really curious about um, and trying to figure out ways to to explore this because I 
from my Jungian side, I'm, I'm familiar with the concept of individuation, individuation, and fi- finding right. our own authority. And I know from experience, especially following COVID and the, the lack of connection and the, the, um, the breakup of community throw into that the divisive politics of our, oh, of our current world. Um, so I, one of the things that I've been really focusing on, especially for the past year is how, how do I build community? Cause we really need that. Um, so I'm, ex- I'm trying to learn about koinonia, which is mm. holy community in the new Testament. Mm. They use that word koinonia, um, which is a, there's a, to me, that's that's a quality of like authentic community. Um, it's a sharing, right? Yeah, it's a share. Yeah, it's shared resources, whatever that may look like. Um, so, what's the relationship between individuation and koinonia? Can, can, um, can I add just something for, for, that, that I've been wrestling with? But, sure. but I don't want you to lose your your right. thought. It's more on the side of psychology because. As much as I love the kind of, and I don't want to say this is at odds with like the Jungian approach, but I'm also really influenced by like feminist psychotherapy, mm-hmm. particularly a, a strand called relational cultural therapy, which just so emphasizes the fact that our true wholeness and growth can't happen apart from mutual, right. vulnerable, intimate relationships with others. Right, right. Yeah, and, and so I know that's a little bit different than what you're saying, but but I'm kind of in the same boat wrestling with, gosh, this whole individuation thing. As much as I like it, how does it connect to this mm-hmm. other reality of like intimacy and relationships and needing each other, right. community? Well, and it, it, even the the irony of individuation is that you you're in relationship with someone as you explore that right analysis. Like there's a built-in 100%. relationship. Yes, like yes. that's the key. And from a maybe from a Jungian perspective, that's sure. the key mm. to to finding your individuation is being in relationship. But um, that's a great point. But the 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 church. So back to the authority piece, right? Um, when I so I talk about baptism a lot, okay. and in the in the Episcopal Church, we baptize infants, we baptize adults, um, and one of the things that I always emphasize when I'm talking about it is that it's not something that's earned; it's it's a gift of grace. Mm. So you know, you, no babies are going to take a test before they <laughs> you know, they don't have to show that they know the the articles of. I'm sorry, you're not quite good <laughs> yeah, enough. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> to there's, get the there, water. there's no resume. <laughs> Um, and, and that I point to that, especially with adults who feel like who've been taught their whole lives that they've got to prove themselves mm. worthy, um, for everything. Sure. I mean, that's, that's what our culture teaches. Baptism is a gift of grace. And we recognize in, in a, from a sacramental perspective, baptism is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So we're in that action of baptism, we're pouring water, we're doing this thing, but it, it's about what's happening inside of, of the individual, right? And in our baptism, we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. And what that means to me is that um, one of my jobs as a priest is to help empower people to become who God has created them to become, right? So part of baptism for me is that it happens in space and time, Mm -hmm. 
probably um, as a baby, but it's a whole lifelong journey gotcha. to live into that becoming who God has created them to become. Mm-hmm. And so my authority within the church is about empowering mm. others. So that's, that's how I understand my, like my, my role as priest is not about supporting myself or the institution. Um, although I love the Episcopal church and yeah. it's a great, again, container for me, <clears throat> but part of my job is to help people find their authority, their mm. own inner authority. And that's the language of Holy spirit. Um, hearing the whispers of the Holy Spirit. We talk about that sometimes, or I like to say holy nudges Yeah, I like um, that. that you pay attention to what your calling is in the world. And that's fulfilling that calling, fulfilling, um, you know, your unique character and your new unique quality is what it means to be a faithful Christian. Oh, I like that. So, and, and the, you know, I think something that Hollis says quite a bit is, you know, individuation is not synonymous with individualism right. or narcissism right. and, and all of his emphasis on sort of discovering and living into your personal authority for him coexists with a type of accountability. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not accountability in every circumstance to maybe a community or, or an authority figure, but it is an accountability to that rich reality within yourself mm-hmm. that because I think sometimes people argue well if you're just on the individuation path if you're not a part of any kind of official community you're just going to do your own thing and, and, and live this crazy life and you know you have no guidance and and I'm not sure that's always true mm-hmm. I, I, I think if one is authentically following their own path and trying to live in congruence with their inner authority it's going to lead to benefiting others and, 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 and a good life. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this morning in our class, we were talking and we, and the book is uh ladder to the light is broken up into these little spiritual reflections that he, that the author wrote um, kind of after meditating, he just okay. did kind of a free flow writing. So these are the kind of messages from the spirit. He felt like a conduit and wrote these reflections and then, and then in between, he's kind of doing commentary and weaving it together as a book. But one of the things he talks about is um, the community piece and the importance of um, hearing all the voices in a community, right? Mm-hmm. And in the in the class, I tied that back to our Nicene Creed okay. um, because under the title of Holy Spirit, when we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, one of the lines is the Holy Catholic Church, right. which lowercase c for us, um, Catholic universal. meaning universal, yeah. right? And that was, which to me is a reminder that for us to be authentic community and to be listening to the Holy Spirit, we need to hear each person as, as best we can. We need to be hearing from as many voices as we can. And that kind of gets back to the baptism thing. Each person has been empowered and has this unique perspective on life and this unique voice and vocation. And so when we when we hear from lots of people in the community, we're going to have a fuller. So the way that plays out is like in Bible study, 
I encourage people to just notice. Just when we're reading something, just pay attention to mm-hmm. what you notice because you might notice something that I missed. It might be either challenging or enlightening how you experience it. And so take that as a little nudge and let's let's have conversation around that and pay attention to both what the author may have intended mm. um, and what it triggers in you that you might be needing to share with our, with our group for all of us to, to, to pay attention to so that the individual and in the community, like, I think that's, I, I think it's important to, to have both of the, like support both of those concepts, right? Mm. That each person is on their, journey of becoming and we need community to become well Pittman often says um i alone can become myself i cannot become myself alone i love that i i i think and and just again a quick connection i took a class with Pittman McGee when i was an undergraduate at the university of houston psychology and religion you know Mm -hmm. kind of putting together kind of a form of Christianity with kind of a union psychology. Mm-hmm. And it was either in that class or a lecture that he did connecting like the, the journey of the psyche toward individuation with uh, Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. Right. I think uh-huh. he, I think he yeah. said something like, you know, only you alone can go on your journey, but you can't do it alone. Right, right. Which yeah. gets at that kind of individual, communal, right. dialectic yeah. that, that I'm always trying to navigate. Yeah, yeah and it, and I think I think we tend in back to the individualism we tend to <clears throat> fall over into individualism and um I think that's a that's an american cultural quality value actually yes. I think it's a oh, value yeah, it's a definitely a value um and so I don't I don't actually use language when I talk, I don't use language of individuation because it's so easily sure. confused. But the the journey piece of it, mm. and and uh, um, finding your vocation, I'll use I'll use language of vocation rather I than do too. I, I like that language rather than um, individual. Although I, I like the concept, I get it. Oh yeah, but it's just difficult to. It doesn't communicate all the time. Yes, so. no, couldn't agree more. So okay, how do you end up thinking about dreams? Because that was one thing when I started my own. I didn't do Jungian psychoanalysis. I, I did psychotherapy with a guy that was trained in Jungian psychology. Uh-huh. And, you know, I think he would have said he would have brought like a depth-oriented approach to psychotherapy. But a lot of what we did was look at my dreams. And mm-hmm. on the one hand, it was fucking insane because <laughs> I actually came in with some resistance to that and didn't want to do it at first. But very gently, he guided me through it, and it became so powerful. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I still wrestle with in my own kind of personal spirituality. I don't do Jungian psychoanalysis with my clients, but I do kind of a depth-oriented version of therapy right. with some and, and dream analysis, I guess you could say, is a very important component. So I'm always curious for pastors and other therapists, how do they think about dreams? Mm-hmm. Do you think about it from kind of a Christian perspective? Like, what would that even mean? I'm just so curious well, to hear what you have to say. So John Samford wrote um, the, is it Dreams, the Forgotten Language of God? 
I think that's the title of one of. I don't think books. I've read. I've read several of his books. Have really uh-huh. benefited from them, but I don't think I've read that one. That's interesting. So that one is all about drink. And he, he, I mean, he's a he's an Episcopalian priest and Jungian right. analyst, or was. Um, and he 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 kind of makes a case, probably for the Christian community, okay. his his church, or you know, the Christ, Christians who may want to get into the young and stuff, but just need the context. Yeah, right. Yeah. So he, he, he runs through all these Bible stories and, and, and doesn't distinguish between visions or dreams okay. for the case of the book. But, um, he, that's a, that's a nice resource of just like, this is, this is a long accepted language of God dreams. And, um, Beyond that, when I was first doing dream work with Pittman and the clergy support group, he would often he he would call it the dream maker, right? Mm. Just just the where did where but begs the question: Where do dreams come from, right? right? If right. we don't select the elements and aren't in control of it from an from our ego, where do they come from? Um, I like the language of dream maker. Yeah, and so I think of dreams. I, I do think of dreams as messages um, from beyond. I, I, while I appreciate systematic theology, I think if we <laughs> overly define things, we can. It'll be like pinching a watermelon seed, and it'll just shoot out like. Oh, that's good. It's it's better held lightly. Mm. So, exactly where it comes from, I, I'm I'm okay. It's, it's that great mystery yes. that we were talking about. I but think. they do come from beyond. I mean, they are they are beyond our our own control. And, um, so I, I've been journaling my dreams actually since college wow. because a priest, um, told me it was a good idea. I didn't know what to do with them for a long time, right? but, um, I got in the practice of journaling dreams whenever I could remember them mm. and then did, did dream work both in the clergy group and with James Hollis. And, um, the, that's that was a great source of or still is a great source of direction um there are a few dreams that i still look back to when you know when things get a little wobbly sure um that that have been a source of both direction and encouragement um there was one dream that i had um not too long before i moved out here and while I was still finding my my preaching voice, sure. um, and it was this older priest who I worked with in Houston um, sent me into the sacristy at, at the at the cathedral. Actually, um, I wasn't at the cathedral at the time, but that was the setting for the dream. Mm. He sent me into the sacristy because there were soda cans back there, and I needed to pour them out. And so I was like, what in the world? <laughs> so the sacristy is the, you know, the, where the sacred vessels are kept, which mm. should be wine in there, not, okay. not sodas. And so my task there was to pour out what wasn't supposed to be there. So the saccharin, the sweet, um, the, the not true, those mm. are soft drinks. They're not real libation, mm. right? Wine is what we need to be serving. And so I go back to that if I ever get nervous about sharing a truth that I need to share. I, I can't serve the sugar stuff anymore. Mm. Like that's not 
that's not my calling. That's not who I am. I need to be serving the authentic. And oh, I like that. Um, that. So I go back to that dream a lot. If I, if I ever feel like, I don't know, if, you know, this might shake up the waters or if I'm feeling fraudulent, um, they'll go back to that and be like, no, I've got a, I've got a truth. I've got a voice. Sure. I need to, I don't, I don't want to fall back and just serve the sweet stuff. Mm. I need to serve what's true and authentic. Oh, that's really good, James. I think about it too, for me, like part of what dream work resulted in my, in my own psyche and life, even in terms of like theology and the God images that I was holding on to, as, as mm-hmm. you pointed out, mm-hmm. is it, it showed me a, a God that wasn't in my control, that didn't mm-hmm. always look like the one that I thought I believed in. And mm-hmm. because dreams come from that great beyond, from the mystery and aren't in our control in terms of our conscious ego, they can be difficult right. to sit yeah, with sure. and, and they kind of fuck you up a little bit, right. and like disorient things. But if you, if you can kind of sit in that process, I think there's some, some beauty and some life and some richness that can come mm-hmm. out of that. But I don't think it's going to lead to the conclusions that you probably thought you were going to come to. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or or well, want to come to. And that, that was one, you know, back to the community piece. Mm. Like I, I do, um, try to work with my own dreams and do some association, but the, it is always better when I get someone else's perspective yes. and because people can hear things, recognize patterns in my life that they see in the dream or mm. notice in the dream that I'm my, maybe my ego is kind of protecting me from trying to keep us safe and in the, the familiar sure. and they might see something. They're like, well, what about this? And it's like, Oh Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay. No, absolutely. Um, That's so like one of the things that it's not any kind of formal practice, but my wife and I kind of when we wake up in the mornings, we'll sometimes kind of tell each other about the dreams that we had, especially if they were kind of disturbing or they uh resulted in some kind of negative emotional charge. And it's so interesting how for both of us, we will see the things that they were likely about that the person couldn't see themselves. It It takes someone outside of that kind of ego consciousness to kind of be like, yeah, this is probably what you've been wrestling with and the dream is showing it up even if you can't see it. And then after mm-hmm. a while, we're like, oh, damn, yeah, yeah you're so right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I needed that. Right, yeah. And I, I think the, and people, you know, I, I, people sometimes, speaking of the negative, people feel embarrassed about stuff that happens in their dreams, whether it's an anima I, I, I do sometimes, sure. Yeah. If there's a sexual encounter in a dream or violence in a dream. Right. And so just helping, helping um, or giving people permission to explore those themes without like that. That's not you. That's not something that happened in your waking life. But there could be an important message yes. there for you. Yes. You know, whether the violence is trying to relate I mean, I remember a dream um, where I I was trying to shoot this dark figure with a shotgun because he had kidnapped children, mm. and I was like, "What the fuck? Like, what? Why? Why did that dream come?" And um, through conversation, realized my no, actually, my shadow figure mm. was rescuing the children that I had. I had kept in one part of the house or the psyche wow. and it was elevating the children t- 
to an upper floor up to consciousness. So mm. the overall message was um, about letting my inner child or my playful side um, come back to consciousness when I was doing a workaholic kind of trend I love that. in my life. And it was so, I mean, if I, if I had been embarrassed about the shotgun, which, you know, that's a difficult image. Um, but I knew that I could trust my group to share that and, and work it. And it was mm. so helpful mm. once, once we did work that, work that image. Yeah, it's really good. I always, I love the language of, of kind of sometimes needing permission and others mm-hmm. that can give us permission. One of the ways I try to do that with, you know, the, the few clients that do want to do some pretty in-depth uh, dream work is they'll start by saying, man, this one's a really weird one or gosh, there's some stuff in there that, that I just feel so embarrassed about. And I'm always like, that's, those are the best ones. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's right. I, I, I doubt that you're going to share anything that I haven't dreamt or haven't thought about. Like, right. You know, you can trust me that we're going to have space to explore that. Yeah. And it's not going to be me telling you what it means. You know, it's going to be kind of this process where you're associating and kind of helping me understand right. where your psyche is. Yeah. And so, yeah, giving people permission to explore the, the darker stuff in dreams, I think it's crucial. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and the, you know, maybe they don't want to go post it on Facebook. <laughs> right. Like I sure as hell don't <laughs> like figure out where to share that. Um, but the yes, therapeutic relationship or, you know, hopefully with the priest, people would feel comfortable yeah. you know, share, exploring some of those, some of those dreams, even mm. if they are beyond understanding at first. Yeah. No, I like that. So, okay, James, I know one of the main things I wanted to explore with you in this conversation was just realities around masculinity. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's the best way to put it, but you know, we, we've talked about James Hollis and some depth psychology stuff. We, we, we've, you know, you've helped me think about ways to think about Christianity in light of depth psychology. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on, you know, working with men, mm-hmm. masculinity in general, um, I know that you have this men's group that you mm-hmm. do at the church. I was hoping you can get into that. Yeah. And I've got a couple maybe questions around James Hollis and masculinity, but mm-hmm. maybe we could start with that. What's that group about that yes. you're leading? So this this actually goes back to my own childhood okay. and remembering my... I grew up in Silsby, Texas, just north of Beaumont. Okay. And there is a little Episcopal church there. St. John's um, is still there. Um, my My father's ashes are there now. And, but when I was growing up, he was an active part of the men's group and they had these monthly things they called the men's eating meeting. I like that. And, um, <laughs> I remember crawfish and, you know, they would get together and eat and drink beer together and it was, or not, um, but it was their fellowship. And, um, one of the things, and then, and then there was also a, a women's group and one of the things that I resisted for a while um as a priest was that sort of division among the community like why would there be a women's like women in the episcopal church ordained and they're bishops and they're they're the chair of the board so do is there still that need that was one of my questions early in my priesthood and now i'm like go do the women's group go we've got a a social event called Women, Wine, and Wisdom. Oh, I saw that and they in, meet, in the bulletin. Yeah. yeah, they meet monthly, and it's just a social thing. And um, and so seeing the way that 
um, group functions is part of what encouraged me to like, look, we need to start a men's group and on masculinity and men's spirituality. I think men generally have a lot more resistance to maybe not resistance, but have more difficulty forming communities. Uh, men feel alone. I, I think the research backs that yeah. up. I mean, my experience, 100%. Right. And so starting a men's group and the playful men's eat and meeting, I yeah. mean, that's just like a great, it's part of my childhood, so I can sh- kind of share that part of my story. Um, but it's a real simple gathering. We, okay. we literally just get together and eat. Okay, okay. <laughs> and hey, that you, sounds like something Jesus would do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nothing new here. Um, but we get together and we we meet, we cook while we're gathering. So it's like we're this month we're frying venison um, that that men have donated from last year's hunting trips. Sure. And um, dude, I've never had venison, but when you mention that in the service, fried venison, that sounded intriguing. Yeah. Well, stick around it's tomorrow <laughs> night. Um, but that's that so or, or we'll boil uh shrimp okay. or grill fajitas or whatever but the you know one of the one of my things i try to pay attention to and i can't remember where i picked this up so i hope i'm not plagiarizing but um and this is a general metaphor um but women relate face to face and men relate shoulder to shoulder mm-hmm. and so we can stand next to a grill and have a much better conversation when we're watching something cook than maybe if we're just sitting, like, let's sit down and talk. Yeah. Like, that freezes up a lot of men sure. um, who aren't, who maybe haven't practiced being vulnerable. Mm. Um, so I think about that. So the grill or the, you know, the boil or whatever it is, we can stand shoulder to shoulder and have good conversations and build community. Um, and then what the only converse, conversational piece that I do add is at some point in the evening, probably when we sit down to eat, I'll just say, do you want to go, we'll go around the circle and name something that you're praying for or that you would like us to pray for. Mm. And that without saying, uh, without saying what's burdening you, what's heavy on your heart, all that. What we pray for is, is, is what we're really struggling with or we're concerned and anxious about. And so that, but using the language of what do you want us to pray for gets at that. Um, it seems to work really well. To, and we, we are offering that prayer um, as, we, as we share it. So that's, that's kind of the structure of, of the the men's group and it's like it we've um it's something that people feel really comfortable inviting others to like people will bring a friend and yeah um you know our our police chief comes to it our it's just a good it's been a really it's still a young relatively young group ministry Okay. okay um but it's it's been really good sure so let me ask you this. I know when we were talking right before uh, hitting the record button, we were reflecting on James Hollis's book. I think it's under Saturn, Saturn Shadow. It's, mm-hmm. it's his book on like masculinity and right. doing therapy with guys. And man, it's been a while since I've read it, but I think he has like these 10 major theses that he explores about what it 
means to be a man at a psychological level and he kind of deconstructs those and uh-huh. offers a kind of a different path forward but one of those and I don't want to get it too far off the mark but he says something like men are constricted by as many gender role like limitations as women right mm-hmm. and, and I wanted to see what you thought about that statement if you agree with that you know what comes to mind when you hear that because mm-hmm. I, I, I think I couldn't agree more with it Right. No, I, I think that's true. I think, um, I mean, I think, I think women, and this kind of gets back to learning from feminists, right? right. Um, women have, have bumped up against that and are, have done a lot of exploration and helped identify that maybe has helped men realize, oh, we, we've got these constrictions too. We've got these expectations that we're supposed to live up to not showing emotion, especially not in public, maybe not at all. Right. That myth, um, or I don't want to use the term myth, that lie. Um, that, Better that, choice of word. Yeah, I like that. That we don't have emotions. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think those, those constrictions are, do exist and do hold us back from being our you know, full person that we've been created to be. Yeah. Um, back to that language. So, I mean, one of the, one of the phrases that I've heard at the men's group, um, is, is that, I mean, it's, it's actually, I guess a feminine phrase, maybe if you push on it, uh, it's a place where they can let their hair down. Yeah. Which was okay. an interesting choice of what, Yeah. Words. What do you think they mean by that? It's not, there's no, there's there's no agenda. It's just a place to come and have fellowship, and um, enjoy good food. Mm. And that's, you know, and I and I when I started, it actually intended to have like a discussion each month, and you know, have a speaker come in sure. or whatever. I had sure. this different idea, but at the and I brought that up at the first meeting, and they were just like, nope. Nope, we just need a place to be mm. and not to have an agenda, not mm. to have um, maybe a place without expectations. And that I, I can't remember the way that Hollis puts it, but that gets into one of his other like theses in the book that sort of a lot of males' identity is wrapped up around you know whether it's performance at work mm-hmm. or you know the amount of toys that he has at, at his house, mm-hmm. so to speak. Right. And so when you said I, I can kind of let my hair down, there's no agenda. I thought, man, what a what a cool place to kind of have an identity that's not based on like performance, right? Yeah, or the accumulation of material things. Yeah, that you're just kind of experiencing that koinonia, that that fellowship right. with yeah. with others. Mm-hmm. I, I could see that being very powerful for a lot of men. Yeah, yeah. No, it's been. I mean, I, and the um, good things have already started to. Like I, in our, when I do marriage counseling, one of the prayers in um, the marriage liturgy is about the love that the couple shares overflowing, mm. and it's that generativity, right, yeah. that comes from a relationship. It's the way we talk about creation, that the love of the Trinity mm. overflowed into creation. It's beautiful. Um, and so one of the generative things that's already come out is of that group is um, wanting to do a father-child camping trip where we take our probably over to St. Joseph's Island, which is 
undeveloped next island up and um and just doing a camping trip just to share fellowship with our children and be you know fathers and and enjoy enjoy nature so that's that and that's not some that was not on my agenda i mean it it wasn't like a planned thing it's just something that's overflowed from that and we've already fed the church Mm. um at the end of summer we had the celebration and because of that group um, decided that we were going to do a fish fry for the church. So the thing that we do together, we wanted to share Mm. with the, with the wider community and that's going to happen again at the end of next month. When our Bishop comes to visit, we're going to do another, another venison fry for the whole community. You know, and, and, and not that it has to be seen this way, but, from my perspective, what an interesting way to kind of mess with some gender role expectations. Too. Yeah, right. Usually it's the women who right. are expected to do those kinds of things. But here it is, a group of guys that's doing it. I, I love that. Right, yeah. I love that too. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it, I was thinking about that. Yeah, we're, we're getting together and cooking. Yeah. That's, that's, that's really cool. Okay, so I want to ask you one last question, if that's okay with you. It's kind of a two-parter. Yeah, sure. uh, I've, I've been kind of asking guests uh, this question kind of near the end. When you, you know, look at your community, when you look at the greater world, can you tell us about one thing that continues to like sadden you or maybe even brings you to your knees or it's a source of kind of some despair? And then at the same time, is there something that you're really hopeful about? Mm -hmm. Something that is just very positive or that you're looking forward to that is sort of something that's that's light and beauty in the world for you? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, there's there there are a lot of things to to despair about in the world. Um, I think it may be because of the planned camping trip, um, but I I think the lack of mentoring mm. in our world, like that, there's not that, and the church is one place that it can potentially happen, not the only place, okay. um, but that our children don't have the the rites of passage and the training and the empowerment to um, become who God has created them to be. They, they're they kind of floundering in a eternal adolescence mm-hmm. and, um, and oddly, um, you know, just following the, the spirit of the times um, without without growing up and becoming conscious, and mentoring is one of the ways mm. I think that can help our children grow up and become, you know, the the people God has created them to be. Sure, Th- that for me is like kind of a meta thing that falls out to other problems in the world. Okay, um, but that that sort of relationship, uh, and I know it is it is happening. But I think there's a um, generally in our in our culture it's not happening. So kids aren't being empowered mm. and and go and experiencing rites of passage mm. that help them have those milestones. Like I have done this, even confirmation, which is such a weird sacrament. <laughs> it's like it's like we do infant baptism, so we got to do this confirmation thing. Uh, but confirmation is a rite of passage, and that going through that being confirmed and there are some natural ones getting a driver's license of course is one right. I remember Pitt and McGee was was big on that one 
Yeah, yeah, that rite of but, passage. But you know, I, I don't, I don't want to like, like cut you off too quickly. But man, I, I end up working with a lot of young males in my mm-hmm. therapeutic practice, and, and I see this so much. Mm-hmm. This, like, I think you called it this eternal adolescence and mm-hmm. kind of a failure to grow into adulthood. So that 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 concern that you have resonates with me so much. I, I don't know that I have an answer in terms of why that's the case. I think there's right, a lot of yeah. different voices out there kind of like feeding into that, but but I see it as a huge problem. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's, and that's, I think the, back to not splitting up the church. So now we've got a youth group and now I see the value of having spaces and mm. smaller communities, but then you know, coming back together as a whole community. So I think there's now I'm more in favor of like the ebb and flow of like giving people the, the container for their particular needs and connections. But then I, I, I mean, and we're, we're in a small town We're we're a church that's well known in our community. So we do get a lot of, uh, a big mix of people thrown in together. So I get to see that happening um, but the, you know, having a youth group is really important to me now where at one point I, I questioned that thinking, well, maybe we shouldn't be splitting up into, you know, all these different sure. groups, but now I see the value, the value of that, um, for those mentoring relationships to be able to happen. Mm-hmm. So then, then maybe to end, what, what would be something that you look out into the world and, and you see as a, a sign of hope or something that encourages you mm-hmm. that, that brings you some type of, yeah, optimism. Um, so, you know, I coming out and uh, coming out of the COVID thing, I think COVID hopefully taught us mm. a lot, the, the lockdown, the pandemic, um, and pushed us to, pay attention to what we actually value. Mm, that's well said. And so one of the things that I'm really hopeful about is the role of the church. And a lot of that for me is potential because I, I feel like the church, and I'm using that term generally right now, um, the church hasn't known its purpose mm. for who knows. I, I, don't, I won't put a timestamp on it. But... Now I I see and I, and I don't I don't even mean the Christian church I mean faith communities because sure, um, sure. I'm I'm fairly universalist I think God is creative and can show up <laughs> however the hell God that. wants to <laughs> um, but the, that faith communities being places a that are authentic and mixed up communities of mm. of different political views like I've. I've grown up in the church knowing that I kneel down next to people who have different political perspectives. I think that's important. And that, yeah, I think that's really important to, to get over ourselves long enough to recognize mystery, higher power. Yes. Um, but also, and along with that, to bump into people that are different from us, mm. not only to have the community and the, the, um, familiar conversation with people who know you, but also to bump into differing perspectives and to um, to be challenged by ancient wisdom that's been passed down through scripture or church teachings that 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 does push us beyond our own limited ego view. I think. Mm, I, like I mean, I value that more than than I 
have in the past. Okay. Like that the, even being around people that are older than we right, are, yeah, younger, yeah. different socioeconomic backgrounds, mm-hmm. different races, genders, right. orientations. I mean, being in that mix, I think, is important. Right, and the and the church is a place where hopefully a church or or faith communities are places where that mix can happen. Yeah, um, potentially. Potentially, <laughs> and that's that's my hope. Like that's sure. why it's a hope. Got you. Sure. Um, it's well something said. that I think is happening, and churches are finding that voice in that place. Um, and and right now, I think as a culture, we recognize the importance of community, mm. and are kind of leaning into okay, why 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 is community so important? What is it that it gives me? And those elements that are present in you know, authentic communities, not little silos right. of like-mindedness, but community where sure. there is that diversity and, and that mix of gender mm. and um, sexual orientation and background. And those conversations are so rich when, yeah. when that actually happens. So mm. that's... I love it. Well, James, I just want to thank you again so much for your time, for your hospitality, for the beautiful service this morning, for having us here um, in your parish, would you mind ending with the line of the podcast, which is to say, continue the conversation, continue the conversation. Awesome. Thank you again. Thank you again for listening to this episode. I really hope that you enjoyed it. Let's try to connect. Reach out to me. You can go to my website at com, or you can Google my name, Kike Autry on Google, and there you'll find my Facebook and Instagram accounts. If you would like to schedule an appointment, you can go to my website or you can go to the website of the practice that I serve at, Katie Teen and familycounseling.com. I can't wait to hear from you. Please share my content and remember, continue the conversation.